Welcome to the Temporary Fandoms Podcast, episode 22. This is the show where we take you on a guided tour of an artist's complete discography and then throw it open for a discussion about what we've learned and what great tunes we've discovered. As you join us, we're exactly halfway through the eight-disc career of Arthur Lee's Love. So if you haven't listened to episode 21 yet, we recommend you go back and jump in there. Love are a curious band because most people only know one of their records, 1967's Forever Changes. So you might wonder why we dedicate so much time to talking about the other seven. Well, basically it's because those other records are full of killer tunes and you could easily miss them while preoccupied with their supposed masterpiece. But also because Arthur Lee's story is a fascinating, if at times heartbreaking one. But that's what you get if you call your band Love, right? If you're not listening on Spotify, you may not know that this show is also available, cut together with sample tunes from every album under discussion. You can find links in the show notes. Our show can be found on the Beat Rehab website and at tempfans.com. And you can get involved in other discography immersions on our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash tempfans. But let's get back to the job in hand and reacquaint ourselves with the excellent crew we assembled for this discussion, shall we? Ladies and gentlemen, tonight's act is none other than the seminal Californian psychedelic rock and soul act, Love. Hello there, welcome to episode 22 of Temporary Fandoms, um, and, or episode 2 of Love. I really wanted to say, like, love, but then I realized <laughs> that um, that would just sound wrong. Maybe I'll, I'll edit this bit out, or not. Anyway, um, if you have not heard episode 21, what are you doing? Go back and listen to that one before you listen to this one. I mean, it's their best period as a band anyway, spoilers this there's some dragons coming um but we can't be temporary fans if we don't listen to the entire discography um rejoining us um from last time obviously we've still got nick nick hello emily emily baldoni hello hello there and you're going to be talking us through which albums today so I'm going to be talking to the penultimate, not penultimate, the ultimate for <laughs> the last four of, of Love's discography. So um, that's Out Here, False Start, Black Beauty, and then Real to Real. Perfect. Uh, Gavin, Gavin Hogg, hello. Hello, hello. And we still got Paul Hanley. Hello, Paul. Good evening. Um, if you listened to the last episode and you didn't notice that a couple of people dropped out and came back in again through internet problems, then I'm actually, I've, I've worked out how to do this editing malarkey. If you did notice, I've still got some stuff to do. Anyway, I'm starting to ramble, so we are going to head you over to Emily after this. Here was recorded during the same sessions as For Sale, and was released only a few months after that album, a factor that probably didn't help Out Here's commercial prospects. This was also, by the way, around the time when Lee turned down an invitation to play at Woodstock. Lee's words, as reported by guitarist Jay Donnellan, No, I don't want to go to New York for one fucking gig. Clearly, Lee was making lots of sound business decisions around this time. Which is kind of ironic, because throughout the various lineups of Love, Lee was always very concerned with the business side of things. He was always the one who controlled the money, and he was always concerned that people were trying to rip him off. But a lot of the time, he really just ended up shooting himself, and by extension the band, in the foot. So, as I said, both For Sale and Out Here were recorded as part of the same set of sessions. Which of these albums you prefer probably depends on your feelings about the jammier and noodlier components of the new lineup sound, which are more fully on display on the tracks on out here. It's cut from the same cloth as For Sale, but the selection and sequence of tracks leans more heavily into the heavier blues rock sound than the previous album did. Full disclosure, this is probably my least favorite love album. Not that it's all bad, there are still some good songs on here. But to me, it's diluted by the sheer length of the album and the inclusion of some overly long jam tracks. See, for example, Doggone, which features a pretty interminable drub solo by George Saranovich. To me, this is really a classic case of one of those double albums that would have been better off as a single album. It's an album in need of an editor. In that way, it kind of suffers from a similar problem as Decapo. 
There are some great individual tracks in here, but the overall impact of the album as a whole is diluted by a few overlong or throwaway tracks that can feel like filler. Nonetheless, there is some great stuff on here if you're willing to wade through a bit of jam to look for it. I quite like the three song run from Listen to My Song, which sounds like it could have wandered off of an earlier love album, on through the bluesier I'm Down and Stand Out, and later on on the album, Willow Willow is a lovely little track with a kind of Arthur Lee chord changes that I'm just an absolute sucker for. And like For Sale before, the album ends strong with Gather Round, one of those tracks that might sound generically late 60s in someone else's hands, but somehow from Arthur Lee, I find the bitter lyrics soulful and poignant. Meanwhile, around this time, there were also various efforts to try to get the original love lineup back together, but they just didn't pan out. For example, a high-profile gig was scheduled at the Santa Monica Civic Center, featuring most of the Forever Changes lineup, with the exception of Brian McLean, who was pointedly not invited. But Johnny Eccles and Kenny Forsey were really in the depths of their heroin addiction at the time, and they were just not up to the task. By all reports, the reunion show was a bit of a debacle, and Arthur was incredibly disappointed. Soon after, Arthur, ever travel shy, finally did agree to a UK tour, and remember, Love had had significantly more commercial success there than in the US. But the long-awaited tour would be with the new For Sale and Out Here lineup, rather than the old Forever Changes one. By the time Love finally embarked on their first European tour in early 1970, Gary Rowles had replaced Jay Donnellan on lead guitar. But the rest of the lineup remained stable for the time being, with Fayed on bass and Saranovich on drums sticking around from the previous two albums. While in England for the tour, the band recorded two tracks that would end up on False Start. A live version of Stand Out, the studio version of which had originally appeared on Out Here, and the opener, The Everlasting First, which features a short but pretty dazzling guest guitar performance by Jimi Hendrix. As you might recall, Lee and Hendrix had known each other since the mid-60s, when Hendrix had played on a Lee Penn single for Rosa Lee Brooks. The collaboration on The Everlasting First came out of an impromptu jam session while the band was in London. The story is that Hendrix showed up at the London apartment that was being shared by Lee and the rest of the band, and the other members of the band were just starstruck. They didn't know that Arthur knew Hendrix. After Hendrix, Arthur, and the band had hung out for a while and most likely imbibed some ahem, substances, on a whim, Arthur called Olympic Studios to see if they had any availability that night. The session that resulted apparently lasted for almost eight hours, but given that The Everlasting First is the only track from the session that made it on to false start, one does kind of have to wonder what happened to the other seven plus hours of material. The rest of False Start, which would be the second and final love album to be released by Blue Thumb, was recorded in June and July of 1970 at the Record Plant in Los Angeles. The Record Plant's co-founder and engineer, Gary Kelgren, had previously worked with Hendrix, and you can definitely hear that influence throughout False Start, which represents the band's fullest foray into a hard rock sound. Your mileage on this one may vary depending on just how much you enjoy that heavier, bluesier aesthetic. Overall, this is probably a more consistent record than out here, which kind of didn't know what it wanted to be between jam bandery, hippie goofiness, and occasional tracks that harken back to an earlier, folkier love sound. In contrast, on False Start, the turn towards a heavier sound is complete. To me, The Everlasting First, which is that opener, the track that had been recorded in that London session with Jimi Hendrix, is probably the highlight of the album. The track takes a while to really get going, but in the last minute or so, Hendrix rips into a guitar solo that is just truly blistering, and you can kind of get a feel for what the energy in that truly epic jam session must have been like. That's the only track that Hendrix actually played on, but his shadow looms long over the rest of the album, not just stylistically, but sometimes in the contents of the lyrics themselves. The second track, Flying, was inspired by Arthur's frustration at finding out that a woman he'd been seeing, apparently like a lot of other women in his life at the time, actually, had also been involved with Hendrix. 
So when he sings, you find someone that you think you can love, and you find out that she's in love with your big brother, the big brother in question is Jimmy. For me, parts of this album are a bit too much in the shadow of Jimi Hendrix. It's a solid album, and I enjoy it when I'm in the right mood for it, but it does feel pretty indebted to his style. What keeps the album appealing for me, though, is Arthur's voice. He's still in great form here, and even on some of the less inspired tracks, it's his delivery that keeps me interested. Take the late album track, Feel Daddy Feel Good, for example. It's pretty standard 70s blues rock, but at the end of each verse, when Arthur goes into his upper register and just starts howling, it just elevates the track into something more than the sum of its parts. As we get farther into the 70s, we start to enter a period where Arthur Lee's drug habits were really starting to get out of control. And needless to say, this didn't do anything to help his general tendency towards self-sabotage. He'd been a hash smoker for a long time, and by all reports, a good amount of LSD was also being consumed. But the really big problem was the cocaine, which he was using needles to shoot at the time, and in scary quantities. By all reports, a lot of the other band members, as well as a lot of Arthur's social circle, were also doing a good deal of drugs. It was just part of the crowd he was hanging with. But with the increasing cocaine dependence, Arthur was getting really paranoid and erratic. Acquaintances from the time describe him as quote-unquote spooky. All of this was making Arthur increasingly unpredictable. Following the end of his Blue Thumb contract, Arthur signed a new contract with Columbia Records, and in May 1971, along with Frank Fayed and a few others, he started going into the studio to record a new album. Until, that is, the record company pulled the plug, because by all accounts, the sessions were just an absolute mess. The promised album never materialized, though some of the demos were released in 2009 as part of the Love Lost compilation. In 1972, Arthur got another shot at the studio, this time with A&M Records. The result would be Arthur's first solo album, Vindicator. The recording process was incredibly fast, some might even say rushed. Several of the musicians who backed Arthur on that, on that record recall thinking that they were just recording demos that would be cleaned up and re-recorded later, but the demos became the album. Personally, I think this album is a bit of a mixed bag, reflecting the somewhat ramshackle conditions of its composition, but I do know some fans who champion it, so if you're an Arthur Lee completist, it's worth checking out. It also features some spectacularly bonkers song titles, such as Hamburger Breath Stinkfinger and Old Morgue Mouth. Both of those, by the way, reflect Arthur's somewhat, shall we say, militant vegetarianism at the time. It wasn't until 1973 that Arthur Lee returned to the studio to record an album under the name Love, this time with a new all-black lineup for Love, with Melvin Whittington on lead guitar, Robert Roselle on bass, and Joe Blocker, who had actually grown up in the same neighborhood as Arthur, on drums. Lee has been quoted as saying to Blocker, I want an all-black band. I want some cats that can play funky and rock. This newer incarnation of the band, along with producer Paul Rothschild, recorded what was supposed to become Black Beauty throughout mid-1973. But in another stroke of bad luck, Buffalo Records, the small independent label that Lee had signed with, went bankrupt before the record could be released. As a result, Black Beauty didn't see the light of day until several decades later, when High Moon Records remastered the original acetates, um, since the master tapes had been lost, and gave the album a proper release in 2012. And side note, if you can get your hands on the album part art for this release, I just adore the photo of Lee that graces the cover of the High Moon record. Bald head, white shoes, and a definite badass attitude. I just love it. Now, for the music itself. It's not a perfect album. I could do without whatever weird pseudo-reggae thing is going on on Beep Beep, for example. But I definitely prefer this record to Vindicator, Arthur's solo album from the year before. Starting with the opener, Young and Able, the tracks on Black Beauty just have a little extra funkiness and purposefulness to them that elevates them. My favorite is probably Can't Find It, which is another soulful vocal performance from Lee, with some nicely double-edged lyrics. For example, when Arthur sings, 
Oh, you know that I'll be faithful, about as faithful as you are to me. You have to wonder whether it's a genuine pledge of fidelity or a passive aggressive dig. In contrast to the Vindicator sessions, Arthur and the band had had a good amount of time to play together and had done some gigging before stepping into the recording studio. And I think this comes out in the greater cohesiveness that you hear on this album. Real to Real was recorded for RSO Records in 1974, and it features the same core band that played on Black Booty the year before, with some additional studio musicians filling out the keyboards, horns, and backing vocals. In spite of Lee's uninspiring commercial record, Skip Taylor persuaded RSO to give him the largest advance of his career for the album. And indeed, it would be the last major label recording contract that Lee would receive. Around this time, Taylor also arranged one of the biggest touring opportunities that Love had ever received, including opening for Lou Reed and Eric Clapton. But by all accounts, Lee was in pretty poor shape at these live dates, and a lot of people who were close to him at the time see it as yet another lost opportunity. With Real to Real, Love turns away from the Hendrix-esque hard rock of the previous several releases and tries out a more funk and soul-influenced sound. The main exception is the very Hendrix-y busted feet, which first appeared on Lee's solo record, Vindicator. This is an album that, to be honest, I wasn't that impressed with when I first heard it, but I have to say, over time, it's really grown on me. After the long stretch of heavy blues rock over the previous several albums, I just like hearing Lee experiment with some different types of sounds. No, it doesn't sound like a love album, whatever the hell that means, but it's fun, and it's funky, and the whole band, Arthur included, just sound like they're having a ball. And Arthur's vocals are once again great, this time delivered in a more fully rhythm and blues style than we've heard him use on previous records. The album closes with an acoustic version of Everybody's Gotta Live, which is easily my favorite track by this incarnation of the band. The song had previously appeared in a more muscular arrangement on Vindicator, but I personally prefer the stripped-down version here. There's something really poignant about the way that Lee sings those simple lines of the refrain, everybody's gotta live and everybody's gonna die. And to me, it's the perfect closer for the last proper love album. As you probably already know, Arthur Lee went through some pretty rough times after this. He continued to struggle with substance abuse, and he had a variety of brushes with the law. In 1996, Lee was convicted of negligent discharge of a firearm. Having previously served two years for arson on top of a variety of assorted drug and assault charges over the years, he was sentenced to 12 years in prison under California's Three Strikes Law. He was released from prison in 2001, five years into his sentence after a federal appeals court found that the prosecutor in Lee's original trial had been guilty of misconduct. Before the prison sentence, Lee had started touring with members of the band Baby Lemonade as Love with Arthur Lee. Between Lee's release from prison in 2001 and his death from leukemia in 2006, the collaboration with Baby Lemonade continued, including live performances of Forever Changes in its entirety. I never got to see this final incarnation of love myself, but I heard amazing things about it, and I will be forever jealous of folks who got to see it. I'm also just comforted to know that after so many years of commercial and artistic frustration, not to mention some serious bouts with drug and alcohol dependence and, of course, his time in prison, Arthur finally got to see how much his music had impacted people. In the intervening decades, Love, and particularly Forever Changes, had achieved something like a cult status, and Arthur seems to have been really genuinely touched by how much his music meant to people, many of whom hadn't even been born at the time when Forever Changes was originally released. In spite of the many questionable choices of Arthur Lee, there is something that just makes you want to root for him, and it makes me happy to know that he finally got this kind of vindication in the end. Hello there, welcome back. Um, you have been listening to Emily Baldoni talking through the ultimate um, four albums of love. And and hopefully, as has been mentioned on the previous, previous pod, you have been driving through the Midwest or the mountains and found that this podcast is an excellent way to pass your time or even do, washing the dishes in Manhattan. Um, still seems weird that that is the sound people hear when they're doing these things, but hey, 
whatever. Um, okay, we are back with the same people, Gavin, Emily, Nick, and Paul, and we are moving on to the latter half of Love's career. On a previous pod, uh, Jeffrey Lewis mentioned that double albums were usually the first sign that a band had run out of ideas. We can't give you more quality. We're going to give you more quantity. Um, and we've got out here in 1969. Emily, it's a double, right? It's a double. There's a lot to it. And actually, uh, you know, this had all been recorded in the same sessions as the previous album, For Sale. And it's it's one of those deals where the previous album was the last um, album in the record contract with Elektra. So Elektra got to pick the tracks that they want. That's what went on the previous album. And then out here were all the rest, which went to Blue Thumb and they released. Um, I think you could probably argue that the, the better tracks went to Elektra, like Elektra chose, chose well. With that said, I think it's there are still some real highlights, but it's just it's an incredibly long album, and it is not it is not all um, ultimate in the uh, the uh, the quality sense necessarily. Um, yeah, I mean it's 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 baggy and not baggy in the sort of early nineties type of way, it, and it's it seems to be all over the shop. I mean, this was nineteen sixty nine, right? So this this was Woodstock year, right? And well. And Love could have actually had the opportunity to play at Woodstock. Um, they were asked, and Arthur Lee was like, no, I don't want to go for, like, one gig, basically. <laughs> um, so yet another in a series of, of questionable decisions made. Um, Paul, um, musically, I mean, okay, first of all, I'm going to ask, ask you the obligatory how's the drumming question. Well, that's kind of clouded by the track Doggone. Which is the I, 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 seriously amongst the worst twelve minutes of my life. I think listening to Doggone, that drum solo is just—it's interminable, isn't it? It's you just when you think it's over, he hits one more drum. And um, does anybody has anybody here listened to that more than once? Seriously, I've, I mean, I've, yes, I, 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 I listen to it more than once, but it's it doesn't get any less interminable. <laughs> <with repeated lessons. laughs> I mean, it's I mean, I mean. Can, can God knows, Paul. Is there such a thing as a good drum solo? There is. I'll tell you a good drum solo, and it's uh, moving away from the pulse beat by Buscocks. Oh, Buscocks, yeah, yeah. Because that he basically plays the same thing he plays when the rest of the music's playing. So that's a good drum solo. That um, is a good drum solo. Yeah. yeah, that's the only one, as far as I can see. That's it. That, that is the only good drum maybe, solo. Maybe maybe the down in the tube <laughs> station at midnight live, but that's that's quite good. But it's very very short. I mean, that, sure, that, that's surely the that's key, the, isn't it? Surely that's a place for drum solos. Like and and most sort of extended solos is live. Don't put it on the record. Yeah, well, if there is a place for drum solos, but I'm not sure there is. I mean, but also it seems such an odd place to put it in that particular track. If you listen to it, I mean, it's hard. You, you tend to forget the rest of the track once you're deep in the drum solo. But if you were to go back and listen to the bit of the track that isn't drum solo, which is about ten percent of it, probably less, it's quite a whimsical little number. And then it's mm. got this big drum solo appended to it. it doesn't belong there at all. I, mean, I don't know nice. where it would belong, but that track I know in particular seems wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's supposedly, really on, isn't it? supposedly, like, so George Saranovich, who was the drummer at this point in time, like, if you, um, apparently everyone in Elton the band was like, oh, George is, he's so, he's, he's really technically skilled. Like, oh, this is the best drummer that Love has ever had. And like, he saw it as a, the drums as like a melodic instrument or, or something. So this was like the chance for him to. To showcase his his, his stuff. That's but the acid talking, it's, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the acid, maybe the cocaine. I was hard to say. Um, okay, so we've touched on it, um, and we touched a, a little bit earlier on about how there were various band members, and at the time, heroin, um, and how that was causing maybe some issues with the band. Um, were the band in a good place at this moment with their contractual obligations everywhere, turning down Woodstock, etc.? I mean, I th- I think that. Um, I think that it was a difficult period. It's, I mean, in terms of the specifically the like the drug abuse stuff, it's 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 not quite reached the the nadir of that yet. But um, I think that, I think it was difficult because I think um, you know Arthur Lee he got this new band together and um, they're still like gigging around LA. But people were sort of like, "Why are you? Why are you playing in this completely different style?" Like they got, they did get some good reviews of the live shows at that time. But there were a lot of people who were just, I think, were thrown off by the, you know, that transition from more folk rock and like psychedelia into a more kind of heavy blues rock style. So I think it was, you know, it was disappointing for Arthur Lee because I think this is the point where, from being very much like kind of like you know this Kings of the Sunset 
strip sort of thing, it's starting to, his stars starting to descend a little bit. Okay, so like he, he, it was basically the classic big fish in a small pond, and then when suddenly people started to look at him, uh, things sort of started to spiral out and go a little bit wrong. Um, Gavin, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just imagining after after your love for album number three that this is just a steady decline, right? Is there anything yeah. that you want that gets you from this one? Not not so much. It's mostly Phil, a very little killer, isn't it, this one? Um, this, I mean... When we talked about For Sale, I think you said, you know, there were some missteps on it after Forever Changes. That This has just got so many missteps. It's it's kind of spun around on itself about 720 degrees. There's um, Discharge, which is like a weird nursery rhyme kind of tune about leaving the army, which is just bizarre. And uh, Car Lights On in the Daytime Blues, like a campfire tune. Thankfully, no drum solo in either of those. But there's a couple of good tunes. Standout is is decent. It's a bit mm-hmm. kind of Hendrixy. Um yeah. But it's got a good chugging riff to it, and you know it's got it's got something to it that a lot of the album doesn't have. Um, but yeah, on the whole, it just feels when you're listening to it, you feel like you've been listening to it for days. You know, <laughs> how long is it? About an hour and around it's about three, an hour, isn't it? It's three weeks long. This album, but it feels like three weeks, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and that thing about the drum solo, I had the same notes about. You just think it's finished, and you're like, oh, thank God, and then he's back again with it. There's a bit where he tunes the drums while he's playing them. No. What is that? <laughs> oh, well, I, I well, just wanted to say though, like um, you know, I mentioned that the, the debut album was sixteen tracks and forty minutes. Mm-hmm. This one's only seventeen tracks, <laughs> so it's not like you know, in the actual song for song, it's not that many more tunes than their debut album, which is you know pithy and on point. And then this is um, yeah, but it's- I think a lot of the best stuff, the stuff I like the most, was actually on on the like second side of the second record. Mm-hmm. So where most people mm-hmm. have probably given up. Right. But there are some good songs buried in there. And there's kind of a game we often end up playing in the Temporary Fandoms group where when you get these long, turgid double albums where someone will say, if you just edit it down, there's a good record in here. And then everyone will start posting their alternate track listings. I'm not sure I can be bothered to do that with this, but I'm, <laughs> I'm willing to bet that there is a lot better album in here if you could be bothered to sequence it properly. And Well, I also, surely, I mean, if this came from the same recording sessions as the, as the, the, the last album, Maybe there's a whole sequencing that could be done by looking at the two as a whole. That could be great. Yeah, Yeah. if you took like the best tracks, and even you know, I agree with what Nick was saying about like actually like the back half of the second album as like it has Willow Willow on it, which is a beautiful little yeah um, yeah, Willow Willow little side single there. But it took me years to discover that song because I like I would try with this album and I would be like, (laughs) my patience would be exhausted. But this is one of the things (laughs) where like listening on something like Spotify doesn't do it any favors, is it? Because when you've got mm. a double album and you just listen to this like hour of music end to end, whereas like a double album on vinyl, it forces you to take breaks. It's 20 I minutes. Vi- I don't think vinyls, I don't think that the, the vinyl is the one. I think it's tape. I think when cassette died, be, the idea of being forced to listen to the, the second side of an album died with it. With vinyl, you could always just put on side oh, yeah. one. With tape, you're at work or school or uni or wherever, you're about to go home and your tape's at the start of side two. You've got to get a pen out and like swiggle it around a little bit or press press rewind for half an hour. So you would listen to side two. Yeah. And now when CDs came about and Spotify came about, et cetera, the default was to go back to the beginning. So tracks like this, buried knee deep in side eight or whatever it was, um, often don't get don't get the looking that they, they deserve. I mean, it's all over the place. I mean, I think at the a lot of their albums, the band seems like three different bands and they don't really know what band they want to be, right? I mean, there's there's a there's a bluesy bit, there's a pop bit, there's a sort of Jefferson airplane uh, type of bit, and then there's Jimi Hendrix bit. I, and I almost wonder if that that's that's kind of like a little bit of his is Arthur Lee's sort of like he's kind of omnivorous, omnivorous in some ways in terms of like musical styles. Like he liked to try out lots of different types of things. And, you know, in the early albums, you sort of hear it from album to album, kind of like changing different styles. But yeah, when you get into this period, it's 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 like five different things. Right? Yeah, and, and I think that only album. gets worse as it goes on. They, mm-hmm. If worse is the right way of putting it, because it's, I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing on later albums, but they, uh-huh. he does jump around from genre to genre yeah. in every record. Okay, well, um, that was a bit of a letdown. <laughs> but <laughs> but, but um, let's go move on to the very aptly titled Full Start, 1970, 
we've had the Hendrix references in the past. Mm-hmm. Here we've actually got Hendrix on the opening track. It's it's a great, great, great first track. Uh, what, Everlasting? Yeah. Um, Everlasting um, first, yeah. Everlasting first, great first track. I did write down, how do you follow it? And then wrote down, you don't, because you then have this substandard track called <laughs> Flying, which that, is just... Fly, flying reminds me of the theme to Minder. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Jimi Hendrix playing I Could Be So Good For You with Dennis Waterman is now my oh, dream. That's a dream team, isn't it? That, that's a mashup. I want some a listener, if you, if you have any ability to edit things together, please send us a YouTube video of Jimi Hendrix and Dennis Waterman uh, doing the Minder theme tune. That would be amazing. Um, Emily, um, we've got Hendrix in. Um, it's sort of bluesy, psychedelic pop rock bit more of a hard edge at times it seems like an album that feels like an album right yeah i mean i think so i think the advantage that this has on out here is that you know like we were just talking about how sometimes some of these later albums are they're just all over the place right whereas i I think that um false start is it's it's more consistently mostly one one thing um although that's not it's not universally true but it's it's kind of the most full um kind of foray into that kind of harder sounds that sort of more kind of hard blues rock sound. So I feel like it, it kind of depends on how much that is, that is your thing, how, <laughs> how much you get out of it. Um, I mean, I agree. I think the Everlasting Verse is by far the, it's the best track on, on the album. And I, I find some of the rest of it enjoyable, but I do have to say that that is, it's not my favorite version of love and in, in part because I, I don't always have the most patience for that particular kind of, of kind of heavy blues rock. Cool. No, that, that sounds good. Um, Paul, I mean, it's a, you were in a band that evolved over many years while you were there and, and, and after you left, and the sound stayed the same yet changed, yet was always seemingly essentially the, the same recognisable core. To paraphrase John Peel. Yeah, yeah. I'm paraf- no, I'm paraphrasing you, paraphrasing John Peel. Ah, okay. <laughs> I never listened to John Peel talking about the fall. I only heard you talking about John Peel talking about the fall. <laughs> Rabbit it was I'm listening to you Peel. talking about him talking about John Peel talking about <laughs> Anyway, it's come full thank circle. you, Nick. Paul, yes. at being in a band that managed to keep a, an identity while still bringing other things in, um, what do you think went wrong with Love at this point? I mean, they've had different influences. They, they can't quite get the balance right. The lineup's changed a few times. Are they, Is there anything you can put your finger on? Are they not one of those things where not, there's nobody next to him Telling him don't be so stupid is it? You know you kind of get that, don't you, with bands where you get to a point where nobody who deals with him has got the enough clout to say that's a terrible idea, Arthur. Don't do that. I, I think, think that's a lot of it. I agree with you about that because I think at this point, like you know, it's it's not they're not session musicians. Like they are, it's the same band, the same lineup for the most part as the previous album or two, but. Um, it's kind of easier at this point for Arthur to just fire people if if he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't like what they're doing. Um, it's not as much of like an organic thing, and so I think there's not as many people to kind of push back against him or like offer other influences. Can I just ask uh, Emily when, when was um, Arthur Lee's first solo album, and how did he make the distinction between a solo album and a love album? What's the difference? I think it might in part be sort of the the the. Um, the terms that he came to with whatever record company was offering him the deal. So um, that's at least part of it. So his, his first solo album comes out um, a couple years after this, I believe it's 72. Um, okay. I should fact check myself <laughs> about that, but it's a couple of years. No, it's no, between, no, you're right. Um, yeah. It's between this one and the, the next right. one. And so I think he had gotten a, a record deal that was, was a solo deal. Um, and that's part of it. So could it have been also, yeah, that he was just kind of like, getting a bit disillusioned with love and love didn't seem to be quite working out for him. So he tried to do it on his own, even though essentially that's what he was doing anyway. I mean, it's, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really know the answer because then he did end up going back into the studio again, like not yeah. long after that to record, like the black beauty sessions are only a year or so after, um, after the first solo album. Oh. Well, well, let's move, let's move on to that because um, in, in terms of actually released albums, you've got full start and you've got real to real, which were the order they sort of came out. But in between those, um, he did two solo albums, recorded a bunch of love albums, which didn't come out at the time. One of which being black beauty, um, which was 1973. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how did it, why did it not get, was it, was it this, 
studio not laying it out? Was it the record company? Was it just him? Uh, I think the the main issue is that the the record company that he had made the deal with it was a small independent label, and they folded before it could be released. So in this this you know there are lots of cases where you know it's kind of Arthur, and in this case in this case it's not. So it's legitimately. Um, bad luck in this case, which is kind of an interesting contrast to actually, you know, um, right before the solo record, um, he'd gone into the studio, uh, to try to make another love album and everyone was just so, um, like he was like super coked up at the time. Everybody, everybody, all the musicians were just kind of a mess. Um, and the sessions were a mess and that album ended up getting scrapped altogether. So this is, um, in this case, it's, it's another case of like a lost love album, but it's, it's due to outside forces. Okay. So, yeah, so he went off, he made, um, first song up was Vindicator in, yeah. in 72. And then for Black Beauty, um, gets an all black lineup, um, uh, in terms of musician wise, this was going to be his sort of big comeback album, um, funk. It's a, it's a funk album at times. Um, he's, he's brought another genre in to try and juggle. Um, whether he does it well enough or not, it's hard to tell because this album was released what, a few years ago, now, like probably in the last nine years or so. So obviously it wasn't necessarily uh, in the form it would have been released at the time. Um, is it any good? Yeah, I think so. Well, it's, it's, there's at least two or three songs on this that are, I think probably as good as he ever did. Um, can't find it. It's great. It sounds like yeah. Prince doing Purple Rain, or uh, and uh, Skid is really, really, really good as well. I mean, it kind of tails off, doesn't it? I don't think there's enough momentum there, but I think there's some. Re- it's a lot better than listening to that double album. Let's put it that way. Am <laughs> <laughs> I the only solo. person that likes beep beep? I don't hate it, but I think it sounds out of place. <laughs> yeah, it does. I don't but think I it works it really in context. It sounds like the theme from Arthur. The cartoon, not not the not the Dudley Moore, the cartoon. You know, hey, what a wonderful kind of day. It's like that. Um, I'd I'd love to, by the way, have a talk to you about having a spin-off pod series where Paul Hanley talks about what's what what old soundtracks the various songs sound like. Because <laughs> I could never, I could never. Oh, Danger Mouse. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be true. I can't force it. It has to be true. <laughs> um, okay, so. So, putting back on track, um, Black Beauty didn't come out. It uh, wasn't released. I mean, it's a great little funk album. There's, there's a lot going on in there. But what did get released um, was Real to Real, which is essentially the last proper love album, right, in uh, 1974. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it seems like Arthur Lee had his final big chance, uh, a, a record exec, took a shine to him, gave him uh, the biggest advance he'd ever had for an album. Uh, he, they'd, they'd gone touring, supporting mm-hmm. like Clapton and Lou Reed. I mean, this this is his moment. He's bound to take it, right? Well, I mean, I, so I think it's, in terms of the album, music itself, I I like Real Real a lot, actually. Um, it's the same... Um, it's the same uh, like kind of core band for the most part. And then they had some additional studio musicians who came in and did a lot of like the horn parts and things like that. Cause it is sort of a, it's a bigger sound on this album. It's continuing that kind of trajectory towards funk. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's more, more instrumentation, et cetera. Um, so in terms of music, I, I, I like it um, in terms of whether it rehabilitated his career. No, <laughs> it really didn't. Um, and you know, that he also, what he went on all these, these, you know, these touring dates around this time, um, which were not incredibly successful. And again, it's, it's starting to enter kind of a bad period for him, um, in terms of he's, he's, he's doing a lot of Coke. Um, and he's like, he's shooting it, which I didn't even know was the thing you could do. Um, <laughs> and I'm a librarian. I don't, what do I know about drugs, but I thought it was rife um, in librarian circles. <laughs> no okay <laughs> they're all free base all free basing meth or um what this was the 70s what was it called then angel dust pcp whatever they said in the movies um, I, I spent my entire childhood not knowing what angel dust was it was just some american drug that made people jump out of windows um okay so he was he was shooting snorting burning burning the cocaine Lots of things yeah uh, and he was also this is also the period where he's um 
uh, or slightly before this, up to up to around this time, he was kind of like a very militant vegetarian um, in the early seventies as well. Not to say that that's because of the cocaine. There are plenty of good reasons for for vegetarianism, but there's just these like crazy stories about things he would do, like um, like he would go to like a, a market, like a supermarket, with um, a cattle prod under his coat, and then um, just strangers at the meat counter, he would like. Get them with the cattle prod and say things like "Don't eat the dead," things like that. I mean, so. who, among, who amongst us haven't done that? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so he's sort of like an, a more militant version of Morrissey. Oh God, that's Christ! <laughs> <laughs> um, Gavin, Gavin, how has how has the decline of of a band that given you one of your favorite albums of all time? There's surely some respite here. Yeah, I. I like this album more than the last kind of three or four. It feels like, you know, what the Ruttles were to the Beatles, the last three or four albums were <laughs> like that with Hendrix. You know, it's kind of like Aldi Hendrix. Um, <laughs> this new direction, I, I like. Um, there's some nice soul horns in there. There's a few kind of Otis Redding kind of tunes. Um, and there's just a nice energy to it again after a lot of the others, you know, the last few albums have been kind of a bit sludgy and turgid and lumpy. and this has got a bit of spirit again in it and, you know, a bit of air in it. And, um, yeah, again, a nice, a good first tune on the album again, which had been lacking on some of the other ones. And uh, the final track, I think, is brilliant, Everybody's Got to Live. Was that on? Yeah. And that was on his solo album, wasn't it? A version it was, of that, was it? There's a version of it on Vindicator on his first solo album, but it's 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 kind of more, um, it's, a, it's a heavier version. It's like electric and it's, whereas this is very stripped down i think it actually came about kind of on on accident he was just playing it on an acoustic guitar they started like recording it and he was like wanted to get rid of it but it ended it did end up yeah. on the it's album nice i think it's a much better it, it's a great tune yeah yeah, yeah it's to, i i like it's it's become over the years one of my one of my favorite love tracks actually i just think like his singing is great on this album like in general um yeah it's got a lovely kind couple, of soul kind of a soul voice yeah. on this album hasn't he yeah. and, it, and it's good yeah he's um, got an amazing voice i mean throughout the mm. career that was one of the things that struck me listening to yeah. all the records is is arthur lee's voice is is something pretty special you know in a kind of quite a i don't know how to put it an obtrusive way like it's not obvious but when you listen to so much of it you just say this guy he's got there's something special about his voice oh his, his voice was great and he also could write a good pop hook um, the problem was other he wrote other stuff that went with that. Yeah, but you could probably uh, from every single album pluck out a track that would yeah. that's a really good piece of songwriting. Totally. I, think, um, I was going to say on that for me the problem is that you know the shadow of forever changes is so large. And if I was doing a C ninety compilation of my favorite love stuff, one one side would be forever changes, and then there'd be one or two tunes from the other albums. You know, but but there are still those like you say there are still those tunes that are. Oh, good. Well, luckily for the the Spotify listener who's listening to the, the playlist, there's a pretty equal distribution of songs from from all the albums, <laughs> um, rather than just just slapping on forever changes. In that in that way, some people they go, "Here's a playlist." You go, "It's not a playlist. You've just put a hundred out, hundred songs in a folder." Although, <laughs> <There's> no- <laughs> I feel like we talked about "Doggone" for so long that I I should put it on the include it on the playlist. Oh, please no? Do. Yeah, please no? Do. no, no, no. Yeah, put it on. Yeah. <laughs> We could do that after after the outro. Or, yeah, Are there any re- any remixes available we could listen to? No, <laughs> probably. Yeah. It sort of sounds it sort of sounds like a re- you know that sort of the twelve inch B side extended cut they used to get like from a lot of bands in the early nineties where there's an extra five minutes of nothing. Yeah. Um, it sort of sounds a little bit like that. It, it, oh, yeah, look, um, and we can't go back to that doggone again, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a good time to sort of. Asked the question. Um, so this was the last album, and there was some good stuff in there, and possibly a new direction. But he also had been given a large amount of cash, and apparently snorted, burned whatever it is with the cocaines um, at that time. Um, how did, did it just end after that? Was he dropped? Did he just lose it a bit? I know later on in his life he had trouble with mental health and say even police issues. But in the seventies. How did he go away? Yeah, I mean, so it's a combination of things. I think, like, he had um, done a few things on the tour and otherwise to um, kind of piss off some of the folks at the at the, the record company. That's um, that combined with the fact that he was he was pretty erratic around this time. Like, I mean, he I think by all accounts he gave some good performances, but it's it you know really just a question of like what what did he do 
before <laughs> before going on stage because um, some of them were just a real mess. So he continues to um, to play live around like the LA area for for quite some time, off and on. But it's getting more sporadic, and you know, it's kind of the sort of thing where the the gigs are becoming kind of just a way to get money to get the drugs, etc. Um, and he's not really he's not really creating a lot new, or being super super productive at this point. And, you know, it just kind of, it gets, it gets worse in the eighties. And of course he ends up doing some time in jail. Um, so this is, this is the last, um, kind of proper love album that ends up getting made. Um, so why is it that some, I mean, it's, it's not a particularly easy question to ask, but like with some artists, it's more obvious than others. Um, why is it that some bands with charismatic lead singers seem to make it and some spiral into only being re- getting recognition later on in life. I mean, is it always the quality of music? Because based on the third album, love should have been massive and possibly, or is it, is it back to what say Paul was saying? Nobody was saying Arthur may maybe do this. Did he need just a strong producer? Did he need someone else in the band? I mean, anybody I mean, got I, any ideas? I think he, I think he needed someone to kind of push back against him, which he didn't, he didn't have in a lot of the later albums. And again, there is still good stuff, but there's not, someone to, to push back against him. I also think just sometimes it takes music a while to find its audience too. So, um, you know, Forever Changes was not a huge hit when it came out. But, but it, but, but it sounds like it should have been then. It sounds mm-hmm. so then. And you look at all the al- other albums that did become big at the end of the late 60s, particularly the ones that came out of the West Coast of America, you're like, well, surely this was one of them. Should okay, so yeah. <laughs> um, that was one of the questions I asked that I thought would get a better re- reaction, uh, but didn't. <laughs> well, no, it was, it was, I think the, it was ahead of its time, wasn't it? Yeah. It was kind of 67 when the rest of that, you're thinking of 69, aren't you, really? 68, 69, I think it was a bit too early to be that band, I think. Yeah, I, I suppose there are. There's, there's an awful lot of sort of, 60s psychedelia that uh, there's what's that there's a series of albums that's basically nuggets nuggets albums. yeah uh and it's it could easily have, they could easily be a band that just appeared on nuggets somewhere Easy. they were too yeah. good for that though weren't it yeah well i mean now we say that yeah but at the time like they were just sort of tr- chugging yeah, along if there hadn't been forever changes then you know my little red book turning up on a yeah kind of garage compilation they would have just been another one of those bands i guess and but I what do, i find I do it think- cool. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I, I, I do think like uh, the fact that like they wouldn't tour at the point in time when this sort of like they had their yeah, window not of playing opportunity, Woodstock. not playing Woodstock, not, not touring outside of California in general, like that, that was the way that they could have become better known why, at that time. You know, why was that? Because it's not like uh, he, he wouldn't fly to other countries. I mean, he only had to get on a bus to go a bit further afield than Los Angeles. It, uh, why didn't he do it? Do you know? It's, I mean, <laughs> He did. He was. This sounds like such a, a trite way to put it. By by all things that I read, he was a real homebody, um, which, <laughs> which sounds so sounds so domestic. But he he didn't like. He did not like to be away from home. He didn't like to eat. Like he would go to San Francisco um, at that time to play because they were always like treated really well in San Francisco. But he, that was like the limit. Like he wanted to be back home in his own bed um, by the end of the night. Like he didn't want to. He, he, it took a really long time to persuade him to actually do um, gigs in farther away places. And uh, again, I don't, you know, I don't, I also don't want to like gloss over like possibly the racial dynamics of it at the time. Right. To, in yeah. terms of traveling more far away from, you know, yeah, the Southern California and like San Francisco area are a particular ecosystem at that time in terms of certain politics. But was that still, was we'd have loved him over here, wouldn't we? I think I think it'd have been yeah. massive if it yeah. come from England. Yeah, I think it, because they even even Forever Changes, which was much more commercially successful um, in England than it was in the United States at the time as well. Do you know when they first came to England? Because there's that there's a lyric on one of the albums or something which I love where he where he said when I was in England town. Right, uh, he had definitely <laughs> yeah. not been to England yet at that point. Yeah, because that's that's a quite that's a quite early one. I think the the first um, the first. Tour is, I believe it's 1970, I want to say. So it's after the breakup of the initial lineup. Yeah. I mean, they've always been really massive in Liverpool as well. Like I lived in Liverpool in the 90s and, and Love and Forever Changes had a real kind of cult following, you know, amongst people there. And um, I know Shaq were 
sort of a supporting band for him in the in the 90s when he played and um yeah there's a, a real affection for him in in the liverpool scene definitely okay well i mean it's probably a good time to wrap up there i mean we had a band who who definitely peaked early um the story was interesting in this in the second half but it was like one of the album titles lots of false starts there's some nice attempts to change sound and a definitely a very charismatic and talented lead singer but then probably as we said one that needed someone to push back on him um like many artists have had over the years whether they're musicians or whether they're they're film directors Spielberg, I'm looking at you. Um, they needed some. So at some point, the strong person disappeared, and they were allowed to do whatever they want. Um, I think we've got a band that retrospectively have a couple of highlights. I mean, obviously, Enemies number one album to hear before you die was. Oh no, it wasn't the album <laughs> we expect it to be. Um, okay, it has been uh, fantastic having everybody on tonight. Um, Obviously, if you're listening to this, um, there will probably be one track, um, we won't mention it, uh, played after the, the, the podcast ends on, on, on Spotify. Um, this is also a perfect time, as I said at the beginning of last episode, to go and leave us a review, please. That would be really great. Um, Gavin, it's been fantastic having you on. It's been lovely being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, Emily, thanks for all your hard work, and we will see you again very soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, Paul, been great having you on. Thank you very much. Really and, enjoyed and Nick, it. Yeah, it's been, and also, also, it made. Uh, I think Nick was a bit nervous at the beginning, so it's been, it's, it was quite funny. Um, <laughs> and Nick. All right. Cheers. See you later. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> That's another band's career itemised and shelved in its right place. Thank you to our curator, Emily Baldoni, for your engaging introduction to Love's final four albums, and also to Gavin Hogg of Smash Hits Appreciation Podcast, The Giddy Carousel of Pop, and to Paul Hanley, drummer with The Fall and The Extricated, and author of Leave the Capital and Have a Bleeding Guest, both of which are well worth reading. Thanks also to my assiduous co-host Ewan for chairing the discussion, and stitching together the resulting mess, and to Jonathan Fisher for our theme tune. And thanks also to you, the listener. We're glad you're out there. Could we trouble you for a review? A few kind words on Apple Podcasts is a tiny gesture that could help us reach more listeners. Please do consider it. We've got another exciting episode coming up next week. Until then, I'm Nick Hilditch, and when I woke up, I took a look around myself, and I was surrounded by 50 million strong. Oh yeah. So around 1993, Arthur Lee was playing a gig in Liverpool, and on that afternoon of the gig, uh, he was doing an in-store signing at the local hour price. He got taken through the back door of the store and into a stock room, which was upstairs, and then they told him just to come down to the counter when he was ready to meet the fans and sign records and that kind of thing. So there was a bit of a wait, and there's quite a few people waiting for him because he's a bit of a legend in Liverpool, but he still hadn't turned up in the shop. So my friend Chris went up to see if everything was all right. To his surprise, once he got in there, he found that Arthur was struggling to climb into the one-metre-square dumbwaiter which linked the stock room to the shop floor and, and carried product up and down between the floors. So Chris helped him out, gently took him by the arm through the door, which had an exit sign above it, um, which somehow he'd missed on his first attempt to leave the room and took him downstairs to meet his fans. And Chris said that Arthur had seemed OK with either option. <laughs>